Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. I observed yet another thing meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, with no brother or child, and works as hard as he can to make as much wealth as he can, but then asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's also meaningless and depressing. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out their hand to him. Likewise, two people lying together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? One person can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three is even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Vietnam veteran William Broyles writes, A part of me loved war. Now please understand, I'm a peaceful man, fond of children and animals. And I believe that war should have no place in the affairs of men. But the comradeship our platoon experienced in that war provides a moving and enduring memory in me. A comrade in war is someone you can trust with anything because you regularly trust him with your life. In war, individual possessions and advantage count for nothing. The group, the unit, the platoon is everything. A part of me loved war. Fascinating. William Broyles understood something that our text talks about today. And that is, is that there is more to life than just the individual. And we've been in this study in Ecclesiastes, this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes now for several weeks. And we're spending time this fall, we've called it unsatisfied, if you see the banners up here, because the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're following along, is the search for satisfaction under the sun. If you're using the notes, Ecclesiastes is the search for satisfaction or meaning under the sun. That's a phrase he used at the beginning, first chapter. He's, he's describing life under the sun. That is, if this life is all there is, and that's how many people look at life today. They're not necessarily convinced that God exists. So if we're just making observations, Solomon says, let me make several for you. And he takes us through this in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And today I'm going to look with you at chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. I invite you to take out your Bibles and look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're using the Black Bible, it's on page 463. And if you're using your own Bible and getting used to it, Ecclesiastes is near the center of your Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. And I've entitled this message, Better Together. And the reason that I've entitled it Better Together, I think you're going to see as we go on, is because if you can multitask in the second line of the notes there, Solomon, in this chapter, contrasts two approaches to show the one that's better. He contrasts two approaches, and you'll notice there in the notes, the two approaches are life alone, life together. He says, put them side by side. And make a decision as you travel through life which one you're going to choose as your overall strategy for living. He says, as I make observations in this world, I see things. And I appeal to you to tell you that I think life is better together than better alone. So as we think about this today... Um, I, I want to just mention that this is a common way of wisdom literature. That's what Ecclesiastes is, so is Proverbs. And they use different sentences and different phrases to teach us wisdom in a way that we can still remember later. But they start sometimes with a sentence this way, better is this than that. Okay, I looked at Proverbs this morning. Solomon also wrote that book. And uh, here's some of the ones he says. He says, better a dry crust of bread with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. I think we'd all agree with that, right? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Better is a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. And Brian talked to us about injustice last week, but this week we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about how better together. So let me pray, but before I do, let me just answer this question. Why do we need this message? I mean, I'm sure some of you are thinking, duh, Jeff. None of us wants to be lonely. None of us thinks that that's the better way to live. This is so straightforward. Why in the world would we possibly need a message or a reminder like this? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the United States, we idolize independence. In the United States, we prize our privacy. In the United States, it's becoming more and more common for us to drive our car home, push the garage door opener, drive our car into the garage, push the garage door opener again, walk into our houses, and avoid human contact with higher and higher frequency. Because nowadays, the way we're interacting with people, a lot of people don't even know how to be a friend. A lot of people have been hurt in relationships, and so they go inward and become self-protective. There's a lot of us in this room that may be cynical that two is better than one or better together. And I don't know where you start this morning, but I need this message. I need this reminder because everything seems to be pulling me in a direction of what one person is called cocooning. And it's so easy to kind of pull back. We often think that success in life is the rugged individualist. But in fact, Solomon argues otherwise. 
So let's just pray that God will teach us from this text today what he wants us to be reminded of or to understand maybe for the first time. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can call on your name. I thank you that you've given us your word. And I thank you for the privilege, like Brian already mentioned, to be able to gather together with other people that we might learn together. Please teach us today things that are very personal and applicational to our life that we might actually practice these things. In your name we ask, amen. Okay, so first of all, if you're following along, what I want you to see is that in the first two verses, um, by the way, just to give you an idea, uh, verse six says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Do you see that again? Better. So in verse three, verse six, Verse 9 and verse 13, you see this idea of better, better. So let's just look at this. Verse 7, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. By the way, whenever you see the word meaningless, Steve and I mentioned this early on, meaningless is the word in Hebrew, hevel. And the word hevel means vapor, mist, smoke, like a breath on a cold morning that quickly evaporates. The idea is meaningless is pointless. It's fleeting. It's not ultimately going to satisfy. And so he says, I saw something else that was meaningless, that was pointless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is heaven. A miserable business, he writes. And so if you're following along, Solomon pictures a man all alone, consumed with work. In this first picture, he says, you know, as I look around, here's what I saw. I saw a guy that was really working hard. He was accumulating a lot of wealth, but he was all alone. He didn't have any family. He didn't have any friends. And he was just all alone. Some of us say, well, why was he alone? And the, the scripture here tends to imply that he was alone because he had flipped his priorities. Some of us say, how does a person get alone? Well, it's by making something more important than the people around you. It doesn't necessarily start out that way. But in the United States, we, we prize wealth. We prize Hard work. And Solomon has already told us to enjoy the good things that God gives us, to even enjoy our work. There's nothing wrong with enjoying. But when enjoying goes to worshiping or looking to it for ultimate satisfaction, then what can happen is a whole bunch of people can get ground to powder. Kids can get forgotten, overlooked, not missed. Marriages can get blown apart. Friendships can deteriorate. And that seems to be what's going on. And this guy, he says, I looked and I saw a guy that in the world's eyes was hardworking, was making tons of money. He was all alone. If you're following in the notes, notice that hardworking and wealthy, yet discontent, he asks, for whom? Like, who am I doing this for? And he doesn't really take that question very seriously except to just go, this is nothing. I thought if I got to this point, it would be something, and I'm finding out it's heaven. I don't even know who I do this for anymore. 
I'm all alone. And some people wind up all alone. I think of Marilyn Monroe, who took her life. And she once said, I sometimes wonder if the only people that really listen to me are the people I pay to work for me. Very empty, Hevel. He says, that picture gets my attention. All alone, life alone. Then bookmarking verses 9 through 12, he goes to verse 13. He talks about another better. And in verse 13, you'll notice what he says there. He says, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. And he goes on to talk about how fleeting popularity is. But the implication is, is that the reason why this king loses his following is because he will not listen to other people. If you're following along in the notes, he also, Solomon also pictures an older foolish king who won't listen to others. Why do, why do we get like that? Why do we think that we don't need what other people have to say to us? What kind of arrogance is that? What kind of belief is behind that posture? It's this idea that I don't need anybody. I don't need what you think. I can do this on my own. And again, the picture is all alone, all alone. This is what bookmarks this passage. And so Solomon just says, have you seen people like that? They blow off every piece of wisdom or help that someone offers. And as time goes on, they're all alone. All alone. That's life alone, he says. Now, let me tell you what I think is better than life alone. And it picks up in verse 9. And I want to ask you if you'd read it with me in that first gray box and be ready to read just a little bit later in the second gray box. But as we often do, let's read the word of God out loud and together, full voice. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Now, would you just say those five words with me again, the first part? Two are better than one. I bet you can remember that past today. Because Solomon wrote this in such a way that it's wisdom that you can carry with you. Now, that doesn't mean you and I believe it. It doesn't mean that when you and I walk out of here, it makes any difference in our life. But its starting point is nothing can affect us unless we at least know what it says. So two are better than one. Do you mind just turning to your neighbor and saying two are better than one? Now, let's talk about why. Because Solomon says that there's reasons for this. He doesn't just say, so there. You notice even in verse 9, he gives a reason. But if you're following along, Solomon gives four reasons why two are better than one. Solomon gives four reasons why two are better than one. And I want to pause for a second and say this. What you're going to see throughout Scripture is that when you make a general statement like that, that if you're like me, you can go, well, I can think of some times when that's not true. And he knows that. But he also knows that even if you qualify those things, it's still in the long run true. It is the probability that if you choose to live this way the majority of your life, you'll be better off. Will you get burned sometimes? Mm-hmm. Is it a risk? Mm-hmm. Two are better than one. Here's a verse in Proverbs 18, 24, just to show you how Solomon balances this. 
One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Some of us know that sometimes one is better than two. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been a student in a class where you were assigned a project with another person and they were a lazy bum, (laughs) those are the moments you walk around and go, "Mm -mm, one is better than two. Right? But even then, it would be better if the other person was reliable or they gave themselves just like you're trying to give, right? And in that case, two is better than one. That is the overall truth in life. Solomon is saying, if you observe it, if you watch two people that are both committed to the two-ness, you will see it. Now, I want to make one other comment here. Some of you are here and you're not married. And I want to just say that if you think this passage is about marriage, it's not. It can apply to marriage, but Solomon was not writing about marriage here. I know these verses get used at weddings, but they were not written for weddings as much as they were written for life. The picture he has in his mind here is he pictures two people traveling through life. And in those days when you traveled, it was never wise to travel alone if you could help it. Why? Because there were dangers, there were pitfalls, there were things that could happen, there were weather conditions, there were all kinds of things that you had to deal with. So he says, look, when you're a traveler, two is better than one. And therefore, this message applies not just to married people, it applies to every one of us, no matter what our age is, no matter what our station is, no matter what our background is. We all need to learn some things about friendship. We all need to learn some things that are found in these verses, okay? So, first, the first reason he gives is that you can accomplish more working together if you're following along. You can accomplish more working together. I was thinking about the very first day, 22 years ago, Trish and I moved back to Springfield from Iowa. And that day, our our, uh, truck that we had rented with all our furniture and everything, we pulled into there in Westchester and there was about 15 people from Cherry Hills waiting. Now, some of you are going, I didn't have 15 people when I moved. I I don't know why. Maybe it was just because they heard there was a new pastor coming back, whatever, and they felt sorry for me. But I'll tell you this. (laughs) I noticed that if I would have been in charge of unloading that truck, it would have taken me hours. 15 minutes later, everything was in our house. I've never forgotten that. I thought, oh my goodness, you can accomplish more a life together than life alone. It's just so much true. I've noticed sometimes if I'm raking leaves, it takes forever by myself. But with someone else, it goes faster. You can accomplish more. You know what I'm talking about? You can picture that? I put out to the right, Nehemiah 6.15. If you've never read the book of Nehemiah, it's a fascinating book. After God destroys Jerusalem because people continued not to listen to him and he'd warned them again and again. For 70 years they're in exile and then he begins to bring them back as he promised. He's bringing them back to restore. But he uses a guy named Nehemiah to help rally that charge. And see what had happened is all of the the walls were destroyed. Jerusalem was totally bare and exposed and that's not a good thing for a city. So Nehemiah got a vision from God of how to do it. And he began to assign people that their part of the wall would be right near their house. That way they'd build the wall extra conscientiously. And as they worked side by side, in 52 days, they finished the wall. 
unbelievable feat. And I think the rest of their lives, they went, wow, together is better. That's amazing. It's a wonder. If I would have done life alone, not only would I have been exposed, we would have never experienced that kind of thing together. You can accomplish more. Second reason he gives is found in verse 10. And in verse 10 he says, If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. So if you're following along, the second reason he gives is not only you can accomplish more, you can encourage and lift up each other. You can encourage and lift up each other. I would love to tell you that since I became a Christian, I've never stumbled or fell. Uh, There's not a week that goes by that I don't stumble and fall in some way or fall short. There are things that trick me and fool me. There are things that just in my weakness I don't always understand and see. And what I've learned is, is, wow, it's powerful when you're with someone that can say, okay, let's go. Let's keep going. We don't have to make it a big, long deal. Here, let's go. Or... I've found that it's been a real privilege at times that someone's come back to me and say, you know, when I was really discouraged, you lifted me up. You encouraged me. I was wondering if it was even worth it. One of the precious passages, a few summers ago, Steve taught on the book of Ruth. And in that, there is this incredible story of how uh, an Israelite family, because of a famine, had moved to Moab, a neighboring nation, And there, their sons got married to two gals. And after they had been there for a while, the husband and the two sons both died. So now the the mother, the wife named Naomi is childless and without a husband. And all she has is the opportunity to go back to Israel where she knows anybody. And when she gets ready to go back, she tells her daughter-in-laws, you can stay here. I know this is your people. And Ruth says something to her that many of us have never forgotten if we've ever read this before. But Ruth replied to her mother-in-law, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. You want to talk about intentionality. Oh, my goodness. Do you think that took the bitterness that Naomi had in her spirit and did at least something to at least lift her up a bit and give her hope? It surely did. And then she lived that out. It was a powerful thing. They figured out life together in the next few chapters. The third reason is that you can support and fire up each other. If you look at verse 11... It says this, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? This is probably one of the reasons why some people think that this has to do with marriage is because a lot of times we think in our culture that married people sleep together and keep each other warm. But I want to just explain this again. This, we have so sexualized everything that sometimes we think that way. But in this culture, literally, because of the conditions in Palestine, when you traveled, you often laid back to back in the outdoors. Most of us don't live outdoors. 
We're so used to turning the heat up or doing something like that. But when you're out in the conditions like that, you have to figure out all kinds of ways. If you read about expeditions, they figure out ways if they have lost some of their supplies to try and just stay close to each other to keep warm. There is this idea that you can somehow bring warmth to another person's life by being next to them. And that's why I put this idea that you can support and fire up each other. Um, One of my favorite characters in the Bible is David. And I love the way that he inquired of the Lord as he walked through life and so many times in situations. But the guy behind David, David, if he was standing on the stage, would tell you, I don't know where I'd be at times if it wasn't for a guy named Jonathan. Jonathan was the king's son, the rightful heir to the throne, but David had been promised by God that he would be the king. And rather than being bitter about it, Jonathan looked for ways to help fulfill God's promise and encourage and support David. And David was being chased by Jonathan's dad, Saul, running for his life for almost a decade. And look at this passage in 1 Samuel 23, 15 and 16. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul was coming to kill him. But Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and strengthened his faith in God. I love that phrase. When I memorized this years ago, he helped him find strength in God. What support? How to fire up a cold and scared heart. Years ago, I read about a little first grade boy whose dad was killed in a farming accident. And so he had to figure out how to keep going to school and still help his mom. And one of the boys in his class was a Christian, and his family every night prayed for this boy. And so he looked for opportunities to be sensitive to this boy. And one day, he just came up to him at lunchtime, and he whispered to him, Our family prays for you every night. And the little boy seemed unfazed by it. He, he said, oh, hmm, like that. But when no one was looking, he pulled this kid around the corner and said, you pray for us? I didn't know you were praying for me. Things are real hard. Mom doesn't know how we're going to pay the bills. Some of the equipment's been breaking down. Thank you for praying for me. Together is better. Even if we put up a strong front sometimes. And that is one of the reasons... That Solomon says it's just better. The fourth reason is, is that you can protect and defend each other. You can protect and defend each other. And that's found in this second gray box, verse 12. Would you read that with me? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This idea of standing back to back, when Lauren was reading this scripture earlier and reciting it, did you notice he said, standing back to back? What an incredible picture. Sometimes you'll read of accounts where people are going through dangerous conditions. Just two people, one will stand watch while the other one can get some sleep and then they'll trade and things like that. There's just something. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Bible says we have an enemy who's seeking to devour us and have us for lunch. Those of us that follow Christ. And so we, there's, there are some things we cannot No matter how proud we are, there are some things we cannot do. H.B. Charles says this, there are some attacks you cannot face on your own. 
There are some battles you cannot fight on your own. There are some enemies you cannot defeat on your own. There are some habits you cannot break on your own. There are some problems you cannot solve on your own. There are some needs you cannot meet on your own. And I say, amen, amen, amen. It doesn't mean I haven't tried it sometimes. But every time I've tried it, I've come back to this wisdom. Two are better than one. And so as we think about this passage, one of the things that comes to my mind is Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. That's what's possible. That's what can happen, Solomon is saying, when those two people understand the power of two instead of life alone. That can happen. And some of you have tasted that. Some of you may never have, but you've longed to taste it. And Solomon said, this, this, as I look at life under the sun, this has more meaning, this is better, this is more satisfying way to live than life alone. And so some of us go, okay, I know all that. But I'm still not sure I want to do that. Well, if you're following along, self-pity, excuses, and pride will leave us all alone. Self-pity, excuses, and pride will leave us all alone. Rick Warren tells of a guy that came to his church out in California for about seven years. Every Sunday, he made a point never to talk to anyone never to sign up to be in a group, never to do anything. The only person he ever knew in those seven years was Rick, the pastor, because he would email him or interact that way. After being in that church seven years, he had a health condition that prompted him to have to go to the hospital. After he got out of the hospital, he came to Rick Warren and said, I'm leaving the church. This is an unfriendly church. And as he left... Rick Warren thought to himself, it's that guy's fault. That guy made a point never to be a friend. And many of us say, I'll take this advice when the storm comes. Friends, that's not the best time. The best advice someone ever gave me is instead of, do you have many friends? Have you learned to be a friend? And some of you may say, no, I'm not very good at that. You can learn. Or you can stay in self-pity. When I was a kid, my dad, every once in a while, he knew me so well, he'd go, you're feeling sorry for yourself right now. I'd think, thanks, Dad. (laughs) I didn't think that at first, but many times I realized he was on the mark. And what he was saying is, if you stay in self-pity, it'll paralyze you. It'll never help you move forward. And there's excuses we can blame. We can say it's their fault. It's somebody else's fault. We can do all that. I've done those things myself. I just will tell you, it's not a wise way to live. But pride also says, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need that. No, I can do this. I can do this on my own. I'll just follow Jesus by myself. And friends, again, the scripture just says, come on. It's not better. It's not better. You'll regret it in the long run. You'll live a life where you end up all alone, empty. But notice this. God, if you're following along, made us in his image to do life together. 
That's why every one of us, even if we've had terrible experiences sometimes in relationships, still long for true community. We still long for life together. It's in our DNA. It's in every person. We've been made to want to have a meaningful interaction with other people. But I want you to notice that even God doesn't do life alone. You say, Jeff, where do you get that? Well, first chapter of the Bible. If you look up here, it says, Then God said, and he was in creation, Let us... By the way, did you catch those first two words? What did God say? Let us. Hmm. He didn't say, I will. He says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image, his own likeness. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What's it mean to be made in the likeness of God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfect community. We are made for community. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit are crazy about each other. They're one. And he wants us to know that kind of fellowship. But then notice, the first time in all of creation that God says something's not good. I don't know if you've ever read the account, but he goes, he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He said, it is good. And then he comes to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, what, friends, to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And he makes Eve, but you also notice that because he's been made the image of God, it's not good for him to be alone, period. This, again, just isn't just about marriage. You can be married and be alone, but you can also be friends and together. And God wants us to know that. Let me just say a couple other things before we bring this home. First of all, sometimes when I read the Bible, I think of people like the Apostle Paul, and I picture him just as this amazing guy that went from place to place all by himself. Not a chance, friends. He had companions, always had companions. And when he gets later in his life, he writes Romans 16. If you've never read the first 15 verses of Romans 16, I dare you to do it sometime. It has 26 names of people that he names by names to say, you mean a lot to me, you mean a lot to me, you've, been, you've made a difference. We've been able to do things together. It's amazing. Do you have a Romans 16 list? Who's on it? Are you on somebody's Romans 16 list? David, the mighty David. We often think of him as this great warrior. We talked about Jonathan. Did you know that 2 Samuel 23 lists 37 men that were mighty men, warriors in his camp, in his, his team? Jesus, we think sometimes traveled by himself. No, he chose 12 disciples that they might be with him. In the night he was betrayed, Peter, James, and John, he said, would you pray with me? My heart is breaking. And even though they let him down, he still took that approach. Do you realize the only time Jesus didn't do that approach was when he died on the cross? The only time God knew what it was like to be alone was to redeem us from the curse of the fall, which had broken our fellowship with each other. 
And there on the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God allowed that moment in order that we might be brought back to God, that Christ's death would pay the price. Christ died alone so that you and I would never, ever have to be alone. And why did Christ die on the cross? Not just for individuals. The Bible says he died for a church, a group of people that would learn to do life together. And that is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news we have to share with the world. And so how do we walk through life? Let me just ask you to bring this home. How will I travel through life? First, am I on the life alone or the life together path? Am I on the life alone or life together path? Again, if you just evaluate your life and it, whatever, whichever one you say, it's just good for you to know. Like how, what is my overall approach lately? Am I trying to do life mostly by myself or am I trying to do it more and more together? What direction am I moving? Now, please hear me. I'm married to an introvert, okay? So we talked after this last service because I said that in that service too and she appreciated it because I want you to know some people think when they picture this that you've got to be super outgoing and gregarious and got to talk and got to meet with hundreds of people. No, it may be one or two but are you moving in that direction in some way? Are you? Can you point to any evidence that you're doing life together? Some of you would point to your small group. Some of you would say your Sunday school class. Some of you might say that some people at work is, are you doing life together? The, the next question is, am I investing in both large and small group life? Am I investing in both large and small group life? Out to the right there, I have Acts 2, 42 and accidentally 26. Would you mind correcting that and making it 46? These are some of my favorite verses when we talk about the church. When the early Christians first trust in Christ, do you see what happens? It's, we have the verse up here. It says, and the, all the believers devoted themselves. That's a powerful word. That means intentionally. That means they committed themselves. They made a priority decision. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to what else, friends? and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They were very intentional. How did they do this? Acts 2.46 says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Big group. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Small group. So, Temple courts, homes. Temple courts, homes. Large group, small group. They understood that there's some things that large group means and there are some things that small group means. I want to just ask you, can you look at your life and say, I am learning how to devote myself to a large gathering of other believers and then I'm also learning how to devote myself to a smaller gathering of believers. It may just be two or three other people. It may be one of the life group that the church offers. It may be something outside of our church. Can you point to anything? Are you learning to intentionally give yourself this way? This is the way Christ hoped and intended. That's why all the believers devoted themselves to it. They understood it. They got it. This last question who can I encourage and support this week? Who can I encourage and support this week? Out to the right, I have Romans uh, 12 and Hebrews 10. And I won't share those right now, but you just need to know that in each of those verses is this phrase, one another. One another. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. There's all kinds of this. There's 59 one another's in the New Testament. You know what that means? That means you cannot obey all of the New Testament alone. 
That means there are a whole bunch of verses you cannot practice by yourself. You have to do them with one another together. And so as you think about that, how would you encourage? Let me just get really simple. These are things I think about regularly. You can encourage and support one another this week, at least one other person, with a word, a look, a touch, a prayer, or an act of service. A word. In our pew racks there, I think the seat back said pew, didn't I? It's a chair, sorry. (laughs) Encouragement notes. We have these notes. I watched someone after the last service. I didn't even mention these in the last service. I watched someone walk up and give it to another person. I thought, that is cool. You can do that. A word, maybe it's a text, an email, a spoken word, a written word, a look. So much of friendship has to do with eye contact. It has to do with a smile. It has to do with eyes that are ready to listen. A look has sometimes put someone back on their feet. A touch, a high five, a handshake, a hand on the shoulder, when appropriate, a hug. Those things can sometimes say so much. A word, a look, a touch, a prayer. I love in our church family, somebody new to our church said, I see people in the hallways and in the worship center after service is over just praying for each other. I've not seen that in a church much before. Oh boy, it's powerful. Or on the phone, can I pray for you before we get off? Just a sentence or two. An act of service. An act of service. Some people give bread. They give a ride. They repair something. They help break leaves. Oh my goodness, does that encourage and support. And you and I can do this, but the Lord wants to give us people and names across the ticker of our mind. So as we give you a moment, just a moment to think about that, let me just close with this. We're going to actually get a chance to practice this by closing the service. We're going to sing together. And I know some of you don't always enter into that, but you can. And this song that we're going to sing is going to have both me and we, or our words. They're both necessary. We need an individual relationship with Christ, and we also need a together relationship with Christ, don't we? But I read the Lord's Prayer. You know, we finished with that last week. And I read this poem about the Lord's Prayer that just reminds me of this idea as we get ready to close. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say I. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For to ask for our daily bread, you must include your sister and your brother. All God's children are included in each and every plea from beginning to the end of it. You never once say me. Who are the people that he wants you to do life together with this coming week?